When you value Jesus more than anything, when he is your number one, it will give you boldness to live for him, whether you face life or whether you face death. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Open your Bibles to Philippians, Philippians 1. As you know, we're studying Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. It was written by Paul to the church at Philippi during his first imprisonment in Rome, somewhere around AD 61 to 62. Now, the church at Philippi, remember, had been founded about 10 years earlier by Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And more than any other church, the church at Philippi had been supportive of Paul's ministry. They have financially supported him on several occasions. They had sent Epaphroditus to Rome to support him, and they were constant prayer partners. So this letter is really, in many ways, a thank you letter from Paul to them for their love and care. It's the most personal letter that Paul wrote to any church, and there's virtually no correction, no admonition uh, to this letter except to a reference to some disunity that's been going on between two women in the church. So one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter to them was just to inform them of his status. He'd been imprisoned, they were worried about him, they weren't sure what was going on, and uh, they were concerned, and they probably expected them to be depressed and down, and they were pleasantly surprised because this letter is a letter of joy from start to finish, top to bottom, even though he's been in prison at this point in time for almost two years. He was in prison in Caesarea for two years, and now in Rome for two years. So he's been in a four-year prison sentence at this point in time. But Paul views his circumstances from God's point of view, and so Paul is always rejoicing because God's plan will always come to fruition. So let's pick up the narrative in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. And here's our principle. Rob is home sick, so I'm going to repeat it a couple times so you can get it. Here's the principle. God arranges all circumstances for the progress of the gospel. God arranges all circumstances for the progress of the gospel. So big picture, sin separated the human race from God, but it also separated the physical universe from God. Romans 8 tells us that. And God's master plan is to restore the universe and humanity to himself. That's really the big picture what's going on in Scripture. And this, of course, is going to be completed finally when Christ returns and this present age ends. Between now and then, the gospel is God's plan to reconcile, bring together, restore the broken relationship with sinful people to himself. And as you know, he does that through the sacrificial death of Jesus, his son, who died in our place and paid the penalty for our sins. Now, God had called Paul and set him apart as an apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Rome was the largest city in the known world at that point of time. It had a population of over one million people. 
No city attained that size until London about 1,800 years later, 1,850 years later. So this was a very, very unique city. The Roman Empire had a very well-developed transportation system. It was world-class. All roads lead, did lead to Rome. It had a unified language system. Everybody spoke the same language. So Paul wanted to go to Rome because if Rome was one for Christ, the gospel could easily spread throughout the transportation linguistic system to the rest of the empire. Now, Paul's plan was once he got to Rome to seek financial support to help him bring the gospel to Spain. However, as you know, Paul's plans were not God's plans. And they weren't Satan's plans either. Paul had been set apart to proclaim the gospel of the Gentiles, which made him public enemy number one on Satan's hit list. When you read Paul's biography, just throughout the New Testament, you realize that Satan tried to kill him on multiple occasions. Plots by the Jews, stonings, beatings, shipwreck, even snake bite on the island of Malta. Satan tried to keep Paul off the mission field by inciting the Jews to arrest him and the Jews to keep him in custody. So at this time, Paul's already spent four years off the mission field. He's been in prison. For an action person like Paul, this must have been like you sitting at home with COVID, right? I mean, he was used to going and doing and making stuff happen, and now he's in a prison cell. So Satan's plans to stop the gospel by getting Paul in prison backfired. God brought Paul to Rome not as a preacher, but as a prisoner. I don't think that's what he had in mind. Paul normally began his preaching ministry in local synagogues, and he would witness to Jews as to the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. God arranged for Paul to preach the gospel in Rome as a prisoner, and his audience was primarily Gentiles. Gentile soldiers. He were chained to them 24 hours a day, because God always arranges circumstances for the greater progress of the gospel. The word progress here means pioneer military advance. It means forward movement toward a goal in spite of obstacles and dangers and distractions. It's really a military term, and it refers to Army Corps of Engineers. And the Army Corps of Engineers throughout history, their job is to be up front building roads, building bridges so that the Army can follow into new territory. So what we view as an obstacle, God often arranges to be an opportunity. What we think is a stumbling block, God uses as a stepping stone. See, we would think prison would limit Paul's ministry. Actually, prison expanded his ministry more than any other thing that he had done. It's an example of a principle that God often uses the things the world counts as light, as meaningless to accomplish his eternal purpose. Because prisons and prisoners in Rome were despised. You didn't go to prison unless you were practically an enemy of the state. God was conquering the prison guards through the message of the gospel through his prisoner. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.25, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, so that no man would boast before God. Think about this. Have you ever wondered why you almost never have a day where you actually accomplish everything on your to-do list? I mean, those of you that have a to-do list. 
I've got clients that are retired and they go to-do list. I don't even know what day it is. I mean, <laughs> serious. We have our plans and we make our list and virtually every day something happens. Some series of events, interruptions, or delay changes them. You know, you've got to be at the physician's office at 9.30. But a traffic jam delays you or they forget your appointment and you have to reschedule. When you come back the day you're rescheduled, you meet somebody in the waiting room that God has been preparing to meet you. And you chat with them, et cetera, et cetera, and you just happen to talk with them, and God uses that conversation to redirect their life, and you will never know it until glory. Happens all the time, especially if you're paying attention. God sets a lot of divine appointments for us by messing with our schedules and interrupting our appointments. And most of the time, we're so irritated that we don't get our agenda that we miss the divine appointment. And you know when I figured out? About three in the morning. I wake up and I go, oh, that's what you had in mind. Sorry I was asleep at the wheel, 80 miles an hour on the freeway, not paying attention. I read about a teenager that was so distressed he was planning on committing suicide. The day he was going to kill himself, he emptied out his locker at school. On the bus, another student noticed his bulging backpack and his arm loads of books and offered to help him carry them. Our depressed student was so touched that someone cared that he decided he wasn't going to kill himself that day. He would do it later. Well, one thing led to another, and they became good friends, and they both graduated from high school and went on to successful lives. All because one person helped somebody with too many books to carry. You know, you have people in your life with too many books to carry. And it would be extraordinarily useful just to pay attention to who's carrying a lot of books. You might be able to save their life if we're paying attention to God's interfering with our schedule because he's arranging all things for the progress of the gospel. So Paul gave, God gave Paul a pulpit inside prison that he never could have had outside prison. The Praetorian Guard were who he was chained to on four-hour shifts. So he talked to six people every 24 hours if you could stay awake, right? The, ninth, the, the, the Praetorian Guard were 9,000 elite troops, and they were the personal bodyguard of the Roman emperor. And if Paul had not been in prison, he never would have had access to them. They were highly trusted soldiers right next to the throne, and they were coming to Christ regularly because Paul was a prisoner. Not only that, Paul had access to many officials in Caesar's court because the Roman government at this point in time was going through a legal review process to try and determine the status of this new thing called Christianity. Originally, they thought it was kind of a subset of Judaism, but they really didn't know what it was. Well, I'm sure Paul was glad to instruct those officials, those legal officials, on what the gospel was all about. God was busy surrounding Caesar and the Roman officials with the gospel on all sides. The gospel was exploding right in the middle of this pagan center of Roman politics. And Satan must have been losing his marbles. But none of this would have happened without Paul's chains. All of us have circumstances. Many of you are right now in circumstances that feel like chains. Chains are limitations. Change are things that weigh us down. Change are things that hinder our freedom of movement. And I don't know what they could be. It could be a health issue, it could, whatever it happens to be. 
Someone once said, it's a good quote, it is not only a consecration of abilities that God wants, but a consecration of our inabilities. I don't know about you, but I have many more inabilities to consecrate than I have abilities. An invalid was once told that she could never escape from her prison of pain and weakness. Oh, well, she replied quickly, there's a lot of living to be found within your limitations if you don't wear yourself out fighting them. The lady was Helen Keller, who said, face your deficiencies and acknowledge them, but do not let them ask you. Helen Keller was born in 1880, and at age two, she suffered an illness that left her both blind and deaf. See, God has given us our abilities, but he also arranges for our inabilities. Paradoxically, God often works more powerfully through our inabilities than our abilities. Remember Gideon? God called Gideon to free Israel from the Midianites, Judges 6. And Gideon raised an army of 32,000 troops against the Midianite army of about 300,000. Now, God told General Gideon the one thing that no general would ever believe. You have too many soldiers. With too many soldiers, see, Israel would take the credit themselves for having won the victory. God didn't want that to happen. It's interesting, God promised Gideon the victory. He didn't say how. When God finished thinning the ranks, Gideon wound up with 300 soldiers. And God used 300 soldiers to put... 300,000 soldiers and rout them. Now, 300 is one-tenth of 1% of 300,000. Only God can make those odds work. And God does that all the time, so he will get the glory and not us. And our faith in him will be strengthened. You know, it's easy to compare other people's abilities with our inabilities and conclude that God can't use us. Actually, God doesn't depend on our abilities at all. He depends on his abilities through us. What he wants from us is not our ability. What he wants is our availability. Are we willing to say, here am I, send me. I don't, have, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have the capacity to do this, but your power can work through my inability. Your power works through my weakness. Paul could have pouted in prison and said, well, I can't get anything done because I'm in chains. But instead he praised God and God worked through his chains more than he would have if it had been free. Now, we all have chains. We all have limitations. We all have inabilities. And most of the time our prayers are, oh, God, can you please take this away? Right? I don't like this inability. I don't like this limitation. I don't like this chain. I don't like this obligation that keeps me... You know, I want more freedom. I want to go on vacation year-round, whatever. Maybe we should ask God to show us how he wants to use our current limitations, our current chains to accomplish his purposes. I mean, think about this. Paul's in prison, and what are Paul's friends praying? Oh, God, get him out of prison, please, like yesterday. And his ministry is multiplying and people are coming to faith. And I wonder if they changed their prayer requests when they saw the growth of the gospel. I mean, did they say, oh God, keep him in prison. 
Look at what's happening with the gospel with him in prison. I don't know. See, God uses the chains of his prisoner, Paul, to convert the lost, but also give courage to the saved, and he wants to do that through us as well. Turn to verse 14. Paul says, as a result of my chains, my imprisonment, most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Here's the principle. Our courage grows when we see God's work succeeding despite opposition and hardship. Our courage grows when we see God's work succeeding despite opposition and hardship. See, God's power is often best seen in the face of human weakness. We generally put people in prison because we want to limit their freedom and influence. And Paul's imprisonment not only spread the gospel, but it strengthened the faith of the church. When people saw God working through his imprisonment, their faith was strengthened. You ever notice that courage is contagious? So is fear. Remember when the Philistines invaded Israel under King Saul, and they brought Goliath, their friendly local giant, jolly green giant, right? And he came down and he insulted them and told them they were a bunch of wimps and yada, 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 yada. And they were paralyzed with fear. For 40 days, there's this standoff. And Goliath would come out and taunt Israel. When David killed Goliath, the Philistines fled, and the Israeli army all of a sudden got courage, pursued him, slaughtered them in 1 Samuel 17. When Jesus died, Mark 15, it records that Joseph of Arimathea, you will see this more than once in Scripture, quote, gathered up courage and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And he said, well, what's the big deal? Well, that was not a risk-free request. Jesus was an enemy of the state. He was a political enemy of the Jews and of Rome. So Joseph of Arimathea was going out there asking Pilate, who had ordered his execution for the body. What's fascinating is in John 19, 38, and it says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body, and Nicodemus came also. And you say, what's the big deal with that? Well, remember Nicodemus in John 3 came to see Jesus? When did he show up to talk to Jesus? At night, because he was scared that if he showed up in the daylight, his buddies in the Sanhedrin, he was part of the Supreme Court of Israel, would throw him out, would ex, you know, excommunicate him. He was afraid of being ostracized. However, it says, when he saw Joseph of Arimathea's courage, he gathered courage and went as well. So your courage can inspire others to act courageously. Acts 3 and 4 records Peter and John. Interesting passage. They heal a lame man, they preach a sermon, there's hundreds of conversions. The Jewish religious leaders, the same Sanhedrin, they command them to stop preaching. They say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus, you're embarrassing us. We killed this guy and you're telling everybody he's alive. And now you're healing people, which demonstrates that he's alive. Shut up. And they said, we have to obey God rather than men, we're not going to stop preaching. Well, what's interesting, in, in Acts 4.31, it says they had a prayer meeting, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with 
boldness, with courage. When people see God working, their courage is strengthened. Now, Satan then, he's got an answer for everything. He tries to. He tries to corrupt the motives of those who are preaching the gospel. Go to verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Here's the principle. Don't let other people's behavior steal your joy in Jesus. Don't let other people's behavior steal your joy in Jesus. So the scene here was pretty simple. Paul's in prison preaching the gospel, and there are people, pastors on the outside, that are also preaching the gospel. Some of them really care about the lost, and they're preaching the gospel with good motives. They care that people come to faith. But Paul's got some detractors. He's got some competitors. He's got some people who are jealous of his influence. So they preach Christ, but they preach Christ from selfish motives. They trash talk Paul. They criticize him for being in a prison. They view him as a competitor. They use their platforms to exalt themselves and tear him down. And despite all this bad behavior, people are coming to faith in Christ. See, God's ability to save people does not depend on those who proclaim it. People are not going to come to faith or come to faith because you're brilliant or not brilliant. Right? We don't save anybody. God promises his word will be productive and produce results regardless of who proclaims it. Isaiah 55 says, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding the matter for which I sent it. He, he, he likens his word to water. He says when the rain falls, what happens? Things grow. When you get rain on the ground, you get plant life going. He said in the same way, when my word goes out, people are going to come to faith. It's going to be that inevitable at that point in time. So Paul did not get distracted by arguing with his competitors or people who were jealous of him, etc. He only cared that people were coming to Christ, not who got the credit. You know, the truth is, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets the credit. It is absolutely amazing what can be accomplished when you just freely give the credit to somebody else instead of trying to be in line for the glory. We see that happen. Uh, in our culture on a regular basis. Our work is to tell him. God's work is to save him. Amen? Say amen. All right. Now, it's interesting that Paul says, I will rejoice. He doesn't say, I feel like rejoicing. He doesn't say, you know, I just had a really good meal, so now I'm happy, so I'm going to rejoice. He says, I'm committed to rejoice in face of other people's envy and strife and opposition. You know, how many of you expect people to behave badly from time to time? How many of you expect yourself to behave badly from time to time? Yeah. Is it easier to forgive yourself than them? Of course. 
Sometimes it's not the world's bad behavior that's so discouraging. Sometimes it's Christians who behave badly when they know better that can really take the wind out of your sails. Because you're going, you're supposed to be behaving like this and you're behaving like the world. You're behaving no better than the world. And it's terribly easy to get discouraged and to take your eyes off Jesus at that point. And Paul says, I choose to rejoice in Christ regardless of how humans behave. Human beings are going to behave badly. That means you and me. Yes, that's why we have the cross to forgive. All Paul cared about is Jesus being lifted up because his joy was in Christ, not in his circumstances. His joy was in people being saved, not in who gets the credit. Verse 19. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but with that all boldness, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21 is a key verse. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and then I, don't, I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. That's a mouthful. We're going to try and unpack that the next few minutes. Here's the principle. Valuing Jesus more than anything gives us boldness to live for him, whether we face life or death. Valuing Jesus more than anything gives us boldness to live for him, whether we face life or death. Now, Paul's using this word deliverance. I don't think he's talking about heaven. He's talking about getting out of prison. I don't know know whether I'm going to be getting out of prison or not getting out of prison. He says, I'm depending on only two things. One, your prayers, and two, the provision of the Holy Spirit. He's not counting on the legal system in Rome to do the right By the way, I wouldn't count on any human-run system necessarily to do the right thing. You probably won't be disappointed if you don't count on people that don't know Jesus always doing the right thing, okay? Just saying, expectations. God commands us to pray because he responds to prayers, and Paul is counting on the prayers of God's people. So when we ask you to pray, pray because God listens. God always responds to our prayers, by giving us what he knows is best. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, how big is God's reservoir of supply? Infinite. He said, according to his riches and glory. How big is his riches and glory? It's infinite. God's reservoir of supply is infinite. However, God in his infinite wisdom knows what we need need, not necessarily what we want, but what we need. If Paul needed to be out of prison, the Holy Spirit was going to get him out of prison. 
If Paul needed to stay in prison, the Holy Spirit would arrange Paul to stay in prison. If Paul needed to die and go to heaven through martyrdom, the Holy Spirit would arrange for him to die and go to heaven through martyrdom. That's pretty heavy stuff. Most people expect that God is good when he gives me what I want. Not when I trust him to supply what I need. The truth is God is most honored when you trust him to meet your needs in his time, in his way, according to his purposes. When people see you trusting Jesus, even in the hard times, that's when they want to know about your God. And Paul says, it's my earnest expectation and hope. The picture is, you can't see around a bend in the road, so you're craning your neck. That's the picture. He's trying to see around the bend in the road. He doesn't know where he's getting out of prison. He doesn't know whether he's going to go back to ministry. He doesn't know whether he's going to die and go to heaven. Guess what? You don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. Neither do I. Now, we think life will go on like it normally does. Most of the time it does. But there are days when it doesn't. And you're craning your neck trying to see around the corner, and you have to trust Jesus with that. Paul said, I'm committed to live in such a way that Jesus is exalted and lifted up regardless of whether I live or die. And that should be our commitment as well. If God wills that we should suffer for him, let us suffer in such a way that Jesus will be honored by how we handle it. And boy, that just rolled off my tongue so smooth. And then when it actually happens to me this week, I will struggle with it. I'm just telling you. And here's one of the key verses in this whole book. For me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live. Here's a question. What makes life meaningful to you? What makes you come alive? What in life makes it purposeful and satisfying? Some people would say, for me to live is money, and to die is to be poor. Some people say, for me to live is health, and to die is to be disabled or sick. Some people say, for me to live is marriage, and to die is to be divorced or widowed. Some people say, for me to live is social recognition, and to die is obscurity and isolation. You can fill in the blanks. Some people say, for me to live is food, sex, travel, entertainment, education, and to die is to lose these things. So what's your criteria for a successful life? One of the advantages of this COVID virus is that it has forced many people to rethink what makes life meaningful, successful, and purposeful because many of the things they were chasing are no longer available. There's all kinds of things that we did three years ago that we're not doing today. And many of those people thought is what gave their life purpose and meaning and value, and those are now gone, and now they're saying, what's the purpose of my life? What's a successful life for me at this point? Most people can say, for me to live, what makes me come alive, what gives my life purpose and meaning is X. And they could fill that blanket. Far fewer people can say, to die is gain. Because they have no concept, let alone a strategy, for what happens after death. For you to say to die is gain means everything that gives my life value on this earth 
gets better after I die. Now, that's an interesting frame of reference that our culture doesn't have. If your life is not going to get better after you die, then as you age, you are getting broker and broker and broker. You know, nothing is less relevant to a 100-year-old multimillionaire than a few more dollars. I mean, you're not going to be here long, dude, or dudette, you know? See, as we age, these earthly values fade. We have less time to enjoy them. And our bodies won't allow us to do the things we enjoyed in our youth. I still can't taste anything. And I'm thinking, you know, I took, I took food for granted. I really, I mean, I eat, but I mean, it's like hot sauce. Man, yeah, yeah. It's just fascinating. It's an utterly interesting study that God's got me learning here. Ernest Hemingway, considered one of the premier authors of the 20th century, committed suicide in 1961. After multiple attempts, he was only 62 years old. He may have committed suicide, he's left some fascinating hints. There were many things in life that gave his life meaning. Boxing, bullfighting, hunting, fishing, drinking, traveling, riding, and womanizing. And as he aged, those things became less and less enjoyable, because the human body can't do as much of that stuff. His, quote, adventurous life had left him with four wives, six major concussions, Traumatic brain injuries, depression, and chronic pain. Now, if you say like Hemingway, for me to live, what gives my life purpose and meaning and value is boxing, hunting, fishing, eating, drinking, womanizing, and so forth, and when you can't enjoy them anymore, life is no longer worth living. And when he died, he left behind everything that once gave his life meaning. What's interesting is Hemingway was in chronic pain. So was the Apostle Paul. However, Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, because Christ was his consuming passion. Christ was his first love. Paul's life was really all about Jesus. And Paul could say, for me to die is gain, and not loss, because when he died, he lost nothing. As a matter of fact, when he died, everything he valued in life, he gained more of. At death, he could see Jesus Christ face to face. See, we overvalue this life. And I'm not saying you shouldn't value this life. God gave you this life as a gift. God gave you the relationships in your life as a gift. And you should live for him every day and value it. But we undervalue heaven. Because we've never been there. But it will blow your mind. Far greater than we can even imagine. So dying meant gain because now he said, I can see Jesus face to face. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall fully know, just as I've been fully known. Right now, we see only a little bit. We're pretty convinced that what we see is right. We're pretty convinced our opinion is the accurate one, and it may be, but we only see a little bit. When you value what death cannot take away, it's a pretty good question, by the way. What do you value in life that death can't take away? If what you value in life death can take away, check out your values, because when you die, that's going away. You can say it by Paul, to die is gain. To die is to gain an advantage. To die is to be better off than you were before. To value Jesus more than anything else, you can't lose, because when you get to heaven, you see Jesus face to face. When we live on earth, we have a job to do. If you're still breathing, God's got work for you to do down here. And Paul says, I don't know which is going to bring more glory to Jesus, 
me dying by martyrdom or me continuing to work. He said, I'm hard-pressed. He said, I'm on a narrow path with a rock wall on each side. That's the picture. It's a traveler on this path, and there's a rock wall here and a rock wall there. And he says, man, I'm hard-pressed to know. Would it be better for me to die and go be with Jesus or to continue to minister? Now, the good news is it wasn't his call. That's God's call, right? Paul considered his physical life was important insofar as he could accomplish what God had for him to do. His life was not his own. He was bought and paid for by Jesus, and that is exactly the same with us. Paul didn't have any fear of death. He was ready to leave earth and go to heaven. He said, I'm ready to depart. Now, remember, he's probably... Uh, 61, 2, he was martyred about 67. So he's within four or five years of his death. Now, we know that, but he didn't know that. I might be within 24 hours of death. I might be within 20 years of death. I might be within 30 years. We don't know. That's why every day we commit to the Lord. And the Greek word depart here, very interesting. The Greek word for depart, he's talking about depart and go and be with Jesus. There's four pictures. One, depart refers to a soldier taking down their tent and moving on to the next location, right? As we age, our tent falls apart. You can look in the mirror and see that. I mean, it's got holes and creaks and tears and groans. You've all heard the song, This Old House? This Old House? It it likens our aging bodies to an old house. The chorus says, ain't going to need this house no longer, ain't going to need this house no more. Ain't got time to fix the shingles, ain't got time to fix the floor, ain't got time to oil the hinges, nor to mend the window panes. Ain't going to need this house no longer. He's getting ready to meet the saints. There will come a day when we're all there. I don't care if it's 50 years from now. I mean, you look at me and you go, Brad, you're you're talking like you're going to check out. I'm not planning on checking out. I'm saying, be ready when he calls, whenever that happens to be. Number two. Depart is a nautical term. It's where a sailor gets on the dock, steps on the dock, steps on the ship, and loosens the ropes from the dock so they can sail to their next port of call. Of course, our ultimate port of call is heaven. Third, this word departure refers to setting a prisoner free. Sin is a slave master that keeps us in bondage, and death was going to set Paul free from the very presence of sin. And lastly, departure means to unyoke the oxen. You know, the oxen have done a hard day's work. They've been pulling the plows, etc. And it means to unyoke them and and, and let them rest. And Paul had been carrying many ministry burdens. He was looking forward to setting those down. He knew his earthly work wasn't finished yet. Um, So when you read this, apparently he believed he was going to be exonerated by Rome and would be free to continue to work for the Philippian church. So there are lots of lessons here that are available to us. One... Your life is never your own. Your life is never your own. Our next breath is a gift. We are breathing His air right now. And we take that for granted all the time. So we are never free to do whatever we please. Jesus Christ set us free from bondage to sin, to have a relationship with Him, to do the things that He has for us to do. Paradoxically, when you do the things that he wants you to do, you get more joy than when you're trying to do things that will make you happy. Okay, have you ever noticed this world has a laundry list of stuff? If you only do this and this and this and this and this, then you'll be happy. 
Then you'll be joyful. Then you'll be content. And most of us have tried a lot of the things on that list, like Hemingway. Clearly, they didn't work very well long term. When we do the things that God's given us to do, and maybe that's being a parent of children, or in my case, being Papa, when you're doing the things that God has given you to do, you get joy, because that's what he designed you to accomplish. And for each of us, that may be different things. So be busy doing the things that God called you to do. Every day, God arranges our circumstances so that we can work with him for the gospel. And your circumstances are under God's control. And I don't know what he's going to do or when he's going to do or why he's going to do it, but I know he does it because he loves us. He arranges everything for the good of his children and his glory. So this week, I promise you, you're going to have some things that will surprise you. And some of those, I can hear you say, Brad, surprises are never good. They're never good. They're always problem, right? God has good in all of those schedule changes. Most of the time, we, right? I'm not doing what I want to do. That's because God has a better plan. And sometimes he actually needs to, in my case, you know, the battery dies. Well, that kind of changes your schedule, right? Okay, well, that's what you do. This life is not all about me. It's not all about you either. It's about Jesus, right? It's, a bit, it's, not, it's not a pleasure trip. We're not on vacation here. We have work to do, and God expects us to take care of business. So until we're called home to heaven, God expects us to represent it by telling others how they can have a relationship with the King of Kings. Think about the things that give your life purpose and meaning. And I will tell you that when you have COVID and you're too tired to get out of a chair and you have brain fog and all you can think of, for me to live is Christ. What gives my life meaning? Well, it's not food because I can't taste or smell anything. It's not doing anything I like to do because I can't do anything I like to do. I'm sitting in a chair out of gas. I don't like being out of gas, right? You don't either. So what gives your life purpose and meaning? Is it all the activities down here? Or is it saying, Jesus, you are the reason. You're my purpose. You're my joy. You're my meaning. And I want to express that throughout all the activities you give me. It's not that the activities are a bad thing. They're a good thing. But what's the purpose in them? If we're trying to find purpose in life without a relationship with God, we are barking up the wrong tree. Okay. Let me summarize, and then we'll do a prayer and praise. First of all, God arranges all circumstances for the progress of the gospel. All circumstances. Your life, my life, all the circumstances in the world right now, COVID, political, are all for the progress of the gospel. So you can not sweat the small stuff. Don't spend too much time reading the news 24-7 because you're forgetting that God's working through all that stuff. Be thinking about what God is working behind the scenes through all that. Number two. Our courage grows when we see God's work succeeding despite opposition and hardship. And there's going to be opposition and hardship. God's work is going to succeed despite that. Number three, don't let other people's behavior steal your joy in Jesus, which means stop watching other people. They're going to break your heart. People are going to screw up. So will you. You're going to break their heart too. 
That's why we focus on Jesus, and that's why we learn to forgive. And lastly, when you value Jesus more than anything, when he is your number one, it will give you boldness to live for him, whether you face life or whether you face death. Okay, thank you for listening. Next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up the parable the next four, five, six verses, so please be reading ahead. I love you all. Now that you know, do... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.